Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Kayla. And you're listening to True Crime Exposed. Where me and my mom will bring you a new case discussion every week. We also advocate for victims through interviews with family, experts, survivors, and more. So today I had the incredible opportunity to talk with John Palmer. He's the husband of the victim in our case today, and you'll be hearing from him as well alongside my voice throughout this whole episode. He was so strong and brave and he, you know, hit me in my feels because he just loved his wife so much. He is doing some really great advocacy work. And the way he talks about this is just, it's truly heartbreaking that he's had to go through this. He brought me to tears many times through our conversation, and I hope you guys will support him. Please make sure to listen at the end of our episode to where you can find their social medias, where they're searching for justice for Katie, and where you can get involved with the organizations and nonprofits that are directly related to Katie Palmer. With that, are you ready for today's case? It's the morning of April 21st, 2020, when John Palmer is giving his wife, Katie Palmer, a little nudge to wake her up. And she's resisting. She wants to stay in bed for just a little longer before she has to get up and start into her busy day of teaching. Katie is a science teacher at Scott Middle School, but this is just at the beginning of the pandemic. So John told me they basically went on spring break that year and then never came back to school, which sounded right to me. It was about spring break time when everything starts shutting down, they're closing schools, and so Katie is now remote teaching from that point forward. But Katie was taking it like a champ. She was still excelling in connecting with her students, as well as taking on that role of teaching her own kids there in their home and helping them navigate this new remote learning. So like I said, it's on this morning that Katie's telling John, like, no, I don't want to get up yet. Let me sleep in while I can. But it's not really John who wanted Katie to wake up early that day. It was Katie herself. She had told John the day before to make sure he wakes her up. And I actually felt her so hard on this because there have been far too many days where I'm telling Jacob, make sure you wake me up and don't give up if I say no. Like, you keep bothering me until I wake up. So. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I don't do that. I've always been able to get up to my alarm. Not, yeah, not me. I love getting up early and like, my day is better if I'm up early, if I can get up a couple hours before I work, I feel great. But it's like that, those moments between my alarm going off and actually pulling my head off the pillow, it's like my brain does not function. My brain's just like, no, keep sleeping. Guess who that is like? <gasps> who? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> well, if you don't get it from me. My dad. Yes. Well, at least it was when we were married. He did not like love getting up in the morning yeah well I love getting up it's just like my brain seriously doesn't turn on so I totally felt Katie in this moment like you keep sleeping but she told her husband to get her up and he was like sticking with that and it's I'm this like I would expect Jacob to stick with it if I told him he better wake me up yeah, you know, and she had never gone walking with me before in the morning. We've we've gotten up and like worked out together, but we've never gone on a a walk. Sometimes I'll get up in the morning, I'll lift weights out in the backyard, and then uh, kind of regardless of whatever house we've we've lived in, um, I would go for a walk or a jog. Unfortunately, this was just one of the mornings that uh, she decided to take her first walk with me. So I I woke her up. Reminded her that she asked me the night before to wake her up because she wanted to go walking with me before I went to work. Uh, she initially said, "No, I'm going to go back to sleep." And again, I told her, "Hey, you said to wake, you know, wake wake you up." And um, she said, "Okay." So she got ready. 
I woke up my son Brandon and uh, told him that we were going to go walking and we'd be back. Very lucky he did not come with us. Uh, Brandon has gotten up with me before in the morning and we've gone walking and jogging and very thankful that he stayed in bed. So John and Katie head out of their house and start their morning walk together. Oftentimes when they would walk together, they would walk around the nearby golf course. But it's early in the morning and there's dew on the grass, meaning that the bottom of Katie's pants would probably get wet walking through that grass. And that wasn't going to work for her that day because Katie full well plans to get home from this walk and immediately jump back into bed and sleep for an extra hour before her online teaching duties get underway. So they opt to walking along the road they live on, which is Glenwood Road. She was going to show me where some killdeer were nesting. Again, she was big into ornithology, and killdeer are birds that um, nest on the, the ground. It's a bird that she studied in college and just loved them. So there were some undeveloped lots where she had seen them nesting. And so we walked over there, still alongside Glenwood, Looked over at these undeveloped lots, didn't see them, um, and started to head back. She wanted to turn, turn around. So after no luck in spotting the killdeer birds, Katie and John start to make their trek back home. They're still walking along Glenwood Road. Again, this is the road the Palmers live on, and they live out of semi, city, semi, I said. They live out of city limits where there's a lot of land and back roads. And I knew immediately what John meant when he told me they're walking along these back roads that have no sidewalks and no curbs. You guys know I'm from Idaho. You've been in Idaho. There's a lot of those like back roads that are just two lane roads. Like I said, no curbs, no sidewalks. I drive these roads every day and Glenwood Road is a two lane road. Like I said, no sidewalk, just grassy area next to the road. And it runs along a bunch of fields or like open areas. And there's houses every so often off this road. Now, where are these guys from? Um, They're from Texas. Okay. So when John and Katie decide to start heading back towards their home, they're walking east, and because this road doesn't have any sidewalks, they're walking on the left side of the road towards oncoming traffic, and this way they can see the cars that are coming towards them. One moment, John and Katie are simply enjoying their stroll together, breathing in that fresh air, and the next moment, John is flying through the air. It's 7.45 a.m. when John and Katie Palmer are hit from behind by an F-250 truck driven by their neighbor, Corey Foster. And keep in mind, I said they were walking on the side of the road facing oncoming traffic. So this means that Corey's truck veers across the road onto the wrong side of the street and strikes the Palmers, throwing Katie approximately 70 to 73 feet forward and slightly to the left, where she lands near a tree on that golf course, the one that they normally walk through. Holy cow. Yeah. So that's far. She flies really far. They they both do. But John doesn't get knocked out. He's, as we'll talk about it a little later, but he's not really hit in the head. So he sees himself flying through the air and like he full well, he said it was like surreal to be going through the air like that. And like, he just didn't know what was going on. So his brain knew he was going through the air. Did he know he got hit? I don't think so because it was just like confusing in that moment. He's, he said he was literally just walking and then he's just flying through the air. But as soon as he, like, lands and everything, he, he does realize they were hit by a truck. Yeah. Our bodies are, like, so amazing. I think we've said it before on other podcasts or one we've done before, but it's like our bodies just go into shock and we don't remember things or, which is cool in the moment of trauma, right? Like, who? Yeah, I think he remembered everything, though. But he didn't know we got hit at first. Well, that's because they got hit from behind. Oh, I thought you said they were coming to oncoming traffic. So they're walking towards oncoming traffic, meaning any cars on their side of the road would be coming towards them, towards the front of them. They got hit from behind. So this car came from the right side of the road went to the left side of the road. They're on that side with oncoming traffic to see if any cars, you know, obviously veer towards them. They're not thinking a car from the other side of the road is going to. And then this truck veers over and hits them from the back. They said they didn't hear a truck. It was just, 
Like it came from the back and just hit them. Knocks us out of our shoes. Hits Katie and I, and we went approximately 70 feet into uh, the, the golf course. I immediately knew once I, I mean, I got hit. We didn't hear, we didn't hear the truck. Um, it was surreal in the sense that I was walking, and the next thing I know, I'm flying through the air. I'm seeing his truck out of my peripheral vision. It looked like we were going about the same speed. I hit the ground and, and rolled and um, looked over. Uh, I saw Katie, and she was on her left elbow looking at me but looking over me and let out this horrible moan. I tried to get up. I tried to walk over to her. I, I couldn't. I felt like I had something wrapped around you know, my, my sternum, and it was tightening. I felt like I, I just... I could not get up, and so I crawled over to her. She, again, had let out this horrible moan, crawled over to her, and as I was crawling over to her, I was yelling for somebody to call the cops, somebody to call the police, and that's when Corey Foster, um, on or about that time, had made the statements. Um, oh my gosh, I didn't know it was you, John. I couldn't see. I was trying to clear off my windshield. So he identified me, you know, af after the fact. And I crawled over to her, I laid her down on her back, and noticed she wasn't breathing. About this time, a neighbor of ours had come up, saw Corey in the middle of the road on his phone, asked him what happened. He told her he hit us with his truck. She parked her car, she got out, and she sat next to Katie and was a real calming voice. And I'm begging for Katie to breathe. She's not breathing. Finally, she lets out this gasp of air. And then she starts breathing like a, like a labored, quick breath, um, about once every, you know, 10, 15 seconds. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, that's, that's a good sign. She's, she's breathing. Uh, then I realized that her eyes were not blinking and they were fixed. And she was staring straight up. And then I was begging for her to, to blink her, her eyes. She never did. Um, I mean, I, I tried to close her eyes to see if, I don't know, if anything would, would work at all and she would be responsive and um, nothing. It's right around this time that the paramedics show up with the ambulances. They respond quickly, showing up in less than 10 minutes from the time that the Palmers are struck. Immediately, efforts are focused on Katie because she's in critical condition. Katie is non-responsive, while John was never knocked out, like I said. And it's later on, months after this crash, that Closing Speed Consulting hands over their third-party par crash, crash reconstruction report. They had been hired by Grayson County as a third-party investigation of this crash. And in this report, it's stated that Katie Palmer was projected forward and that this trajectory occurs when a pedestrian is struck by a vehicle above their center of mass and then projected forward. Not only were John and Katie thrown forward, but they were also thrown slightly to the left due to being hit by Corey's truck at an angle as he came across the roadway, the roadway to the wrong side of the road. And as that happened, Katie made contact with the left side of the truck's hood and the left headlight. John is sideswiped by the truck. This is why John is able to stay conscious while being thrown. And it seems that John's head hit the rearview mirror because the rearview mirror is pushed inwards. And John's hair is able to be seen and photographed on the mirror. As the truck comes in at an angle towards John, his right arm and his right, right hip are swiped, throwing him into the grass. And alongside this statement, Closing Speed Consulting gives us the definition of a head slap. And this is when the, quote, pedestrian's head is forced to strike the hood due to the orientation of the pedestrian and the vehicle profile at impact, end quote. And that crash reconstruction was able to determine that this head slap occurred to Katie. There is a visible dent on the hood of Corey's truck, and Katie's hair was visible in this dent. The report goes on to explain that Katie was likely projected forward at an acceleration speed near the speed that the vehicle was traveling at the time of impact, which was determined to be between 33 and 43 miles per hour. So they're saying that when she's hit, she 
is then projected forward at that speed. So 33 to 43 miles per hour and thrown that 70 feet. And this crash report was extensive. So all these determinations are looked at like backed by different equations and all sorts of math that I don't quite understand, but I was able to go through this report myself because John sent it to me. And going along with the speed determined that they determined Corey was driving, he was going 43% faster than the speed limit posted. And closing speed consulting states that this increase in speed also increased the potential of injury by 105%. And this is based on research that determined a higher impact speed, let that higher impact speeds result in higher likelihoods of death, especially when you're going over 34 miles per hour, because being hit by a vehicle traveling above 34 miles per hour is most likely fatal. But it's not just speeding that is cause for concern here, because there's so much more to this case. On top of multiple reasons that Corey Foster should be held accountable for his negligent actions, there is also corruption in the system between covering up for a buddy, making disgusting and offensive comments, letting ego fuel an investigation, and straight-up jury tampering. That would be super scary. But if they didn't hear it, then I guess... It'd be scary after the fact. But yeah, to be hit, we know that one guy that was hit that used to work for you remember he like loved running and biking and all of that stuff and he got hit while he was biking and he's paralyzed now from the waist down Mm, yeah so sad it is I don't know it's sad that they were walking on the other side of the road like they're trying to be safe where there's no sidewalks and then like they're hit anyway yeah Corey Foster got away with killing Katie um because of Tarif Al-Khatib, who was the investigating officer that day for DPS. So before we get into all of that corruption, let's jump back to the tragic day. So when help arrives, John is soon put into the ambulance, taken away from Katie to be treated. It would be the last time he ever sees her alive. And Tarif Al-Khatib is the responding officer to the scene. And he shows up at 8.15, so not quite as fast as the paramedics, honestly not even as fast as the helicopter sent to airlift Katie. He sees Corey, asks him to stay by his truck, goes, um, asks me a couple questions. Again, I just got hit by by truck. Um, he asked me what side of the road we were on. I gave him as much information as I possibly could, and I told him that he was going too damn fast. After John is questioned, he's taken to Texoma Medical Center by the Denison EMS. This hospital is there in Denison, Texas, where John and Katie live and where they were hit by Corey Foster's truck. With Katie's severe head injury, she needs to be airlifted and she's taken to Medical City Plano, which is a general hospital in Plano, Texas. And you worked airlift for a while, didn't you? Like an airlift helicopter for the U of U? Yes, but not trauma. Oh, okay. Just moms and babies. Oh, so you'd like go pick up moms and babies that needed to come back. Yeah. Okay, so it's not all the same people on the helicopter that fly out and get people. Um, It's like the same teams. Like there was trauma teams and then we, we were like the OB newborn okay. team. Okay, that makes sense. Is that what you mean? I meant like it's not all the same. Like it's not just one group that runs the helicopter all day. Not usually. It's. Okay. I mean, not where we live. It might be in other places. Then they're like equipped to take care of that specific need, trauma or baby or yeah. whatnot. Okay. Yeah. So she's, you know, she's airlifted out to this other hospital. So each of them go to different hospitals. Wait, so were you saying the officer took a long time to get there? Yeah, he takes 30 minutes to get there while the paramedics took under 10 minutes and the helicopter itself is there before the officer gets there. Yeah, I was going to say it takes quite a while to get the helicopter up and going. I mean, you can do it quick, but there's a lot of steps you have to go through. So that's shocking that they made it before an emergency responder officer. Uh. Yeah, and basically John says in his thing that it is pretty weird that he didn't get there quickly, that he takes a half hour to get there because he was called and he was actually still at home when he's called to the scene. He said he was on duty, so he doesn't know why he was home, but that he only lived, like he lived nearby this area. So 
he just thinks he took his time. Maybe he didn't realize how serious it was. So back at the scene, Officer Alcatib is talking with Corey Foster, and I watched the entire body cam footage, and the first thing Tariff Alcatab says to Corey is, how much have you had to drink? And then there's this slight pause, but he continues, like, like last night is what I mean. And maybe this is a strange first question, or maybe it's not. I don't know if it's protocol to ask when someone swerves to the wrong side of the road and hits a pedestrian, like if they've been drinking, maybe that is like a very normal thing. But I found it to be a pretty pointed question indicating Alcativ's initial thoughts as he arrives. And Corey tells him that he had a couple whiskeys the night before, but he went to bed around six or seven. I was also wondering if he was drinking when you told the story, like initially. Yeah. And you. So that, I mean, that came to my mind first. Yeah. So maybe it was just like normal for it to come to Tarif Alkatib's mind. I mean, I think anyone would ask it eventually. I just thought with it being the very first thing he says that like wow he really thinks he was probably drinking but it was uh, odd because it's like so early in the morning yeah it's seven forty-five in the morning when he hits the palmers so you know i i didn't know I, it, i'm sure it could be like a very normal question to ask right off the bat i just saw it as a little bit pointed but after Corey tells him he did have a couple and he went to bed around 6 or 7. P.M.? Yeah, P.M., he says. Like, the, okay. I had some whiskeys the night before, but I go, I went to bed at like 6 or 7. Well, that shouldn't affect him. Exactly, right? So then Alkatib asks, well, how many, like, exactly? And then Corey says, well, I mean, my daughter had a fever last night, so really I was, like, up and down all night, so I don't know. So it's like... He had some whiskeys, went to bed at six or seven, but then also his daughter was up all night. So he was up all night. So maybe he wasn't, maybe he was drinking when he was up through the night. He doesn't know. Well, did they do the sobriety test? So they do. And yeah, we'll kind of get into it. But real quick before that, Officer Alcatab indicates that he can straight up smell alcohol on Corey, which again, like from the night before, you don't think you would. But he says, okay, I can smell it pretty strong on you right now. So I'm just trying to figure out when your last drink was. And then again, Corey says 7 p.m., just like he had said a moment earlier. And it's later on when he's asked again about the alcohol, when he says his last drink was maybe at 8 or 9 p.m. Well, if you can smell it and the guy's driving, then, you know, that's a problem. Yeah, <laughs> I don't... I. I don't think you just normally... You're not going to... I mean, I can smell it on anyone, but, like, that means they've been drinking. Right, <laughs> and so he shouldn't be driving, so test him. Absolutely. And get your proof. Yeah, exactly. And give him a DUI and take him to jail. Yeah. Corey's story changed three or four times, at least. And again, I'm, I'm not in law enforcement, but when you ask the same question over and over and you get different answers I would assume that that's a red flag definitely um, a big red flag but again not a red flag if that's one of your buddies so so they knew each other absolutely absolutely okay I was thinking that but there are pictures of the Alcatibs and the, the Fosters at um, Halloween party months before Katie was killed where Tarif Alcatibs wife is almost sitting in Corey Foster's lap. Mm. You know, the wives had gotten together before the party, did their makeup the same, got the same costume, and it was a big house party that they went to. So they were really close. It appears to me that they were. That I mean, just from what, yeah. the, from what the picture showed. The wives used to work together, I believe, at a couple different places. Uh, they both are hairdressers. And then again, Christmas, a couple months before, same, same thing. Uh, Therese's wife and Corey's wife are arm-in-arm. So as you just heard, it seems like Tarif Alkatib and Corey Foster know each other pretty well outside of this incident. Regardless of Alkatib telling his supervisor that he just knows of the guy because Corey's wife used to work with his. And it seems like common sense or probably even protocol that when an officer arrives at a scene to do an investigation, they should probably step back when it turns out to be someone they have a personal connection to. But I don't I don't know for sure how all of that works because I'm not the law. 
So maybe that's not how it works, but it seems that you just would not be the investigator of someone if you are personally connected right, to them. Right, right. If not, just not to be accused of bias. Yeah. Like, it seems normal that you would just step back and be like, hey, I know this guy. I've hung out with him. Like, that Chris, I mean, this is in April, and they, they were at least just hanging out at Christmas, so just months earlier. So it's like, I've been around him too much. Like, I don't want to be in charge of this. But he doesn't do that. And the conversation continues between Alcatib and Corey, and he's trying to get down to exactly what could have happened on this morning. Ultimately, Corey says that on this morning, he had just left his house and he was driving eastbound on Glenwood Road. He wasn't able to see at all because he had fog on his window mixed with the sun coming directly into his windshield. And he states that he should have pulled over at this time, which like, yeah, duh, but he doesn't. He states he didn't even realize that he hit people. He thought he hit a telephone pole when he came to a stop. It's only when he jumps out of his truck to hear John screaming for someone to call 911 that he realizes what had happened. And here's some advice. If you can't see out of your windshield, it is your responsibility to pull over and wait until your windshield is clear. Maybe you shouldn't drive. Yeah. Like, if you can't see, like, you are the one operating that vehicle. So, like, it's up to you. Did he actually call 911 then? He did call 911. So maybe his story too, maybe that is all that happened. Bad sight and the wrong decision of continuing to drive when you can't see. And even though I don't think that's the full story, even if that is all that happened, the negligent decision caused a death and it still puts the only person responsible as Corey. Even if he didn't face a lot of time like if it's like oh the sun was in your eyes but you continued to drive that's a mistake but it is a mistake that does have to be realized that well it was you who caused a death no one else caused her to die like you are the sole reason she died it's like I could see how like he would need to be punished but it also like in that case if there was no alcohol involved or anything it was an accident Mm -hmm. but he went to the wrong side of the road And I have empathy for people. I do like, you know, I have empathy for like everybody. I can always feel like everything. And I do go through the emotions of kind of feeling what everyone feels. I'm sure when he realizes that he hit people, he, I mean, that would be a terrible moment. Like where you're just, you realize that you've done something horrible. Like your life has changed forever. Their life has changed forever. I can empathize with that, but I think it's like everything that happens and then it probably not being just an accident, that makes me like pull back my empathy for it. Yeah, I was thinking like, you know, do does everyone that causes an accident get charged if they kill somebody? A lot of the times, with yeah. murder? Yeah, Travis, yeah, my tra- well, manslaughter, you don't really get charged with like first degree murder, but you'll get charged with manslaughter. And like if you make a mistake and cause the death of someone else, if you're the sole responsibility, I know Travis knows this lady. She, I don't remember the exact story, but it was here in Idaho and she's like a grandma. She's like in her 60s or something, maybe even older. And she was driving on like I-15 and she was coming down the road. It was early in the morning. The sun was in her face and it like caused her to be really tired and she accidentally fell asleep like she didn't plan to do that right she's an old little grandma and she went across the highway hit a car and she killed people and she went to jail for like a long time like almost to the point where we felt kind of bad because she was a grandma and it was almost like is she gonna die in jail for this mistake because she like accidentally fell asleep makes me feel sad but But then again, I can, the people that have family members that die, also it's sad for them. I mean, what is like a couple years of your life or, you know, something or probation or something in your life versus like you took someone else's life, you know, and you'd kind of live with that. And I feel like you'd normally be remorseful. But if it's a mistake where you did something that you shouldn't have and you knew you shouldn't have been doing that while driving or you're driving under the influence... I mean, that's on you. 
Yeah, I agree with that. So it it is hard to navigate, though. But I think a lot of the things that, like, what was frustrating to me through this case is you realize, like, no one's asking about her. He doesn't ask if she's okay. He doesn't care if she's okay. He keeps laughing about everything. It's like he's almost, like, he's just really more worried about himself. What do you mean he was laughing? Was this in... They make lots of jokes. Him and his little friend, the officer asking him questions like they're totally fine like they don't really think this is a big deal they don't they don't realize that she's gonna pass away i don't know if they don't realize or if they really just like don't care about what happened because like yeah but she just got airlifted and paramedics said she was pretty much not doing good yeah inappropriate behavior yeah now, through this whole story, Officer Alcatib comes back to the questioning surrounding alcohol like over and over. Tarif has Corey do some field sobriety tests. He does a walk and turn, which Tarif states that Corey passed the walk and turn. Uh, he has him do the horizontal gaze test. Um, I'm sure you know what that is. It's where the officer has their finger and you follow it back and forth which you couldn't see his eyes on camera, but I'm going to go back to that test here here in a second. And then he has Corey do the one-legged stand, where, in my opinion, Corey fails that. Um, he's standing on one leg. He's shaking horribly uh, because he doesn't want to put his arms up, doesn't make it the full 30 seconds, and, um, you know, falls over onto his other foot and starts laughing, you know, oh man, it's my, it's my work boots, uh, they're, they're uneven, which again, starts laughing, um, he's just killed somebody, and put somebody else in the ICU, and again, never once and it's asked, like you're laughing, starts laughing, never once asked how Katie was that entire time, but, um, you know, has wow. time to start laughing after he failed one of the field sobriety tests, in which Therese said he passed, now, Alcatib grabs a portable breathalyzer test, and he has Corey blow. And it doesn't show zero, but it doesn't show above the legal limit. In the state of Texas, the legal limit is .08, and Corey blows a .06. John says that it seems reasonable that an officer would then wonder when what this person would have blown an hour earlier at the time of the accident. Alcatib also never shows the breathalyzer numbers in his body cam, so we do just have to take his word on it, saying that it was a .06. In fact, he tells Corey, you must have drank a lot last night because this is still going up and there's that much alcohol in your system this long after. Because remember, Corey's saying that he stopped drinking the night before. So far, his multiple stories have stated to have stopped sometime between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. So around 12 hours later, he's blowing a .06. So he either drank a shizload the day before and like woke up a little drunk. Yeah. Which still impairs your driving. Or he drank. Or maybe he had a drink or two that morning. In fact, when Officer Alcatib is talking on that body cam to one other officer, you know, I'll, I'll kind of go through it in a minute, but he kind of. Alcatib kind of goes back and forth between defending Corey and then kind of coming back to the alcohol thing. I guess it's a possibility, but... Yeah, I don't know how possible it is that you blow a .06 12 hours later. Corey blew a .06, but it was interesting that on the, on the horizontal gaze test, um, Tarif said that he had zero out of zero clues. Or... Zero out of 12 clues that uh, he was in, intoxicated. Um, everything that I've read, uh, scientifically, that's impossible. Tarif would have had to have noticed at least two or three clues on the horizontal gaze test for Corey to PBT at a .06. So maybe alcohol did play a role in this crash, but that's just another layer to this case. It doesn't matter if it was fog on his windshield and the sun in the eyes, alcohol in his system, or a mixture of everything that led him to veering into oncoming traffic and hitting Katie. Each of their things on their own can hold Corey accountable for Katie's death. In that closing speed consultation reconstruction of this crash, they point out that driving onto the wrong side of the roadway is in violation of Texas Transportation Code 545.051 
This state law requires drivers to drive on the right half of the roadway unless certain exceptions are met. Well, there were none of those exceptions in this case. And ultimately, this third party finds Corey responsible for this crash. Quote, it is my opinion based upon the totality of evidence that Corey Foster drove without due care, i.e. continuing to drive when he knew he could not see. He illegally drove to the wrong side of the roadway and he was traveling over the posted speed limit at the time of the crash. Although Mr. Foster was not legally intoxicated and passed field sobriety tests at the crash scene, I cannot eliminate the fact that he had been consuming alcohol and that could have also contributed to this result. The involved pedestrians did nothing illegal or contributory in this crash. And so this third party says like that John and Katie did nothing wrong and could have could not have like changed the result of this crash in any way. Now, while Alcatib is finishing up all of this questioning of Corey and talking to a few other officers, he keeps defending Corey. He's almost backing up his story and trying to convince people that Corey really couldn't see. Then he falls back on the alcohol thing here and there to make it seem like he's not pushing a narrative. He's like, based on those field sobriety tests, he really did good on everything. I mean, I could smell alcohol when I walked up, you know, but that was just from the night before. His windshield was super fogged up and he he was driving towards the sun. Multiple times, Alcatib is pointing out where the sun is hitting, how it could have definitely been in Corey's eyes an hour earlier, how even he himself had been driving that day and the fog and sun made it hard for him to see too. He totally gets what Corey means. Again, he falls in and out of this defense for Corey, one second saying he totally gets it, and then he'll circle back around to the alcohol consumption. At one point, he starts talking about how Corey did go to the wrong side of the road, and Alcatib can't believe his blood alcohol level is at a .06 if he stopped drinking at 8 p.m. the night before. But then right after this, he's like, well, he is also diabetic, saying he's diabetic and he's drinking whiskey. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if having diabetes plays into that at all. I know when he was questioned at one point, when Corey was being questioned, I think he said, my blood sugars were low this morning, but I feel fine. So I'm not. Yeah, that can make you. A little out of it. Your brain, your brain not work. Your brain needs a glucose. But then he says, I feel fine. So I don't know. But then we're back around to just how hard it was for Corey to see. Officer Alcatib says that there is a hill, and when Corey comes over the hill, there's only about 200 or f- 200 feet or so once he comes over, and that would put the sun directly into Corey's eyes. However, that crash reconstruction states that the hill did exist, but there was over 600 feet of sightline to the crash area. Quote, the sun was rising in the east, but sun glare is an environmental issue that all drivers must deal with. A driver should not drive if they cannot see. Officer Alcatab is finishing things up, but he wants to call his supervisor first. He can be heard telling his supervisor that John was fine and talking, but Katie was knocked out. She whacked her head real good. That's what he says, really harping on this fact that she just sort of hit her head, and it doesn't sound like they feel it's a dire situation. However, when he returns to the scene later the same morning, Officer Alcatib and multiple other officers have one of the most disgusting conversations caught on body cam footage. Tarif Alcatib, Jack Hill, and David Taylor. And all of these other all all of these comments that I'm about to talk talk about were uh, captured on David Taylor's camera, but Again, Tarif was enamored with how big Corey's house was, how wealthy he was. Uh, they joked about us being neighbors. Um, one officer made a joke about in- insurance money. Um, they started to talk about, it was Jack Hill who started to make the comment that uh, about how Katie's clothes smelled said she must have bathed in um, body spray because, you know, her, you know, that can smell the body spray on them. It's real stout, just joking. You need to put these in the back of your car. It's like so disgusting to me and so gross and it makes me so mad. 
just like that they would be talking like that. DPS prides themselves on professionalism, and there was none that day. None. No. Those three officers absolutely stained the reputation of DPS in Grayson County. All, all three should not be officers in Grayson County, and uh, Tree Falcatib should not be an officer at all. I, I think he should be fired. Um, and then one thing that stuck out, while the officers were talking, Tarif makes the comment, and pardon my, my language, the comment he makes is, man, he knocked the fucking shit out of her, dude. That was his comment about Corey hitting Katie. Now, 30 minutes prior, he's talking to one of his supervisors and he tells his supervisors that Katie just whacked her head real good. Yeah. So much that he, like, actually made her pass away. Yeah, like, so much that he threw her 70 feet and killed her. They're pretty, like, inappropriate. Yeah, yeah like... So inappropriate. A clear indication that they are, like, not being professional or representing themselves well here. Yeah, did they... Those officers get fired? No. So through all of this, Alcatib doesn't tape off the crime scene. He doesn't investigate any further than what I just told you. He doesn't question the two neighbors who saw what happened. Not the woman who was there at the scene within a minute. Not the neighbor that saw from the window. Instead, he grabs Corey's truck keys out of his police car, which he says he put in there so that Corey wasn't in and out of his truck. But now he's grabbing them to let Corey grab from his truck whatever he needs including those two guns, and he then drives his buddy Corey home, turning off his body cam as soon as the duo hops into the car together. After Sharif <clears throat> made these phone calls to his supervisors, they inventoried um, Corey's truck in which um, there was a cup full of some liquid that Sharif didn't test. He probably should have tested. Uh, let Corey take items from his truck unobserved for about 15 seconds. Um, asked him if he had any weapons in his vehicle. Corey said, yes, I do. Tarif then asked a follow-up question, are they loaded? And Corey, for the second time that day, laughed and said, well, it wouldn't be, they wouldn't be any good if they weren't. And all the officers and Corey had a good old laugh. You know, my wife is being... <clears throat> flown by helicopter, her body's being flown to Plano. Um, I'm in the ICU, and um, again, not once did Corey ever ask how Katie was, um, but these guys had such a loose and relaxed uh, demeanor about them, uh, which carried on to how they carried out their investigation. So Corey made a joke, they laughed, then... And here's something to me that just proves how comfortable um, Tarif Al-Khatib felt with Corey Foster is that after Corey, who has alcohol in his system, and again, at, at this point, you, you don't know if it's going up or down. You know, you don't know if Corey told you the truth that he stopped drinking the night before, or you don't know if he woke up and... Um, you know, drank a quarter of a bottle of whiskey before he decided to get in the car. That's hard for me to believe that, yeah, he would be drinking the night before and then the next morning below a point six. Little bit of the hair, hair of the dog, right? Yeah. Um, so at, at this point, you know, Corey's blood alcohol level could have been going up. Um, we, we don't know because, uh, you know, Tarif probably should have given him a, a, another PBT to determine that. Uh, but again, he, he didn't. Um, so he told Corey to reach into his truck and hand him those two loaded weapons. Do you know any officer that would allow somebody who is under the influence or is under suspicion of committing a felony no. uh, to reach into their vehicle and to pull out two loaded weapons? Absolutely not. I don't, and I think protocol itself would say no you have to as the officer retrieve those yourself huge risk huge risk but again that goes to show you that there was a relationship there definitely and Tarif felt very comfortable with Corey Foster because 
uh, in my opinion, because of their family friendship. Tarif insisted that he give Corey a ride. Corey declined. Tarif insisted. No, hop in. I'm going to give you a ride home. And loaded Corey and his handguns, loaded handguns, up in his unit. Um, and instead of driving him to the hospital for a blood test, he drove him home. And uh, before Tarif got into the car with Corey, he turned off his body camera. He said he didn't get a blood test, but I should be thankful that he didn't get a blood test because the PBT score had him at a .06. And if we had gotten blood, that blood could have dropped down to a .03, and that's what you're stuck with. Um, Kayla, I was naive at the time. I, I hadn't had any run-ins with yeah, law like enforcement how would or we anything. Know? Yeah. I, I thought that a PBT was admissible in court. It's not. It's not. Oh. A PBT is not admissible in a criminal court of law. You have to have a blood test, at least in, in, in Texas. So when you're talking about someone who hit two people, you think it would be required that they have to have a blood test? There's a certain level of common sense that I think uh, probably an officer that um, was a week out of the academy would have done that. In fact, Tarif was even asked on scene by another officer, you're getting blood, right? And Tarif said, no, no, we're, we're not getting blood. Um, all this was from last night. Um, speaking to the uh, BAC levels that, that he had. Well, even if he blew a zero, I would almost think you need to blood test someone who hit someone else because what if they're on something else? What if there's drugs in their system? What if there's all these things that could be in their system, even if they blew a zero? And the day before was 420. Mm. So I I believe that uh, there might possibly have been other substances in his body that was causing him that day to be so emotionally flat, right? which he was. Uh, Kayla, if, if you or I had been Corey Foster mm -hmm. and had hit two people with your vehicle, oh. you would probably be an absolute wreck. You would be a mess. Yeah. Probably couldn't com complete a sentence. I would hate myself. I'd be crying. He was completely the op opposite. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that he was in a normal mental state. Um, yeah. We can see that on video now. Um, a trained officer, three trained officers, uh, shouldn't have been able to pick that up that second. But again, um, Tarif didn't want to. Tarif had one goal, right. and I believe that goal to was help to his help his friend and uh, basically get yeah. him a get-out-of-jail-free card. So Tarif Alkatib is an officer for DPS, and these are the officers that had the conversations that were highly inappropriate and insensitive. DPS is basically the state police because the Palmers live outside of city limits, and this is where Katie was hit. The Denison Police Department is a separate police department, which did a wonderful job in their interactions with John Palmer, and this is all within Grayson County. That's just some clarifying information to make the rest of this case all fall together and make sense. Clarify something for me real fast. What, so Denison PD... And DPS. Completely different. So different. Denison PD is obviously the Denison Police Department. This happened outside. We live outside the city limits. Okay. And mm -hmm. so Texas DPS, the Texas Department of Public Safety, okay. lack of better words, state police. Okay. We're the ones on, on scene, not Denison P PD. Those are the people we have the videos of. Those are state And troopers. then we have the yes. Denison PD. And then the Denison PD, they were kind to you, the people you had the interactions with, for the most part. Oh, gold. This day is also about more than a car crash. Katie's family could have never imagined the trauma they would go through. While John is on his way to the hospital, he's worried about his kids. Where are they? Do they know what's going on? Who's going to tell them that their parents were hit by a truck? I was in the ICU at TMC here in Denison. Katie was flown to a trauma center in Plano. Um, I kept asking. I kept asking about her. Um, I remember being in triage saying, hey, look, guys, her, you know, her, her eyes, she wasn't blinking. Um, they were very professional. You know, said they didn't have any information on her, but as soon as they 
found something out, they would let me know. Ah. I was worried about my kids. Had my kids, if my kids had woke up and tried to go find us, nothing. You know, as, as a parent, you're wanting to know, hey, are my kids okay? You know, my, my wife is... Like, what do they know? My yeah. wife is gone, you know, she's... Oh, hopefully, um, she's she's recovering at, at this time. I didn't know, no one's told me. And her anything. mom, did you call her? Like, how did she get notified that she was able to show up at the scene? So... The neighbor that was on, on scene um, knew her son was friends with Katie's brother. Okay. And she was asking me for Rhonda's number, and I, for the life of me, could not remember the number. Mm-hmm. I can tell it to you right now, but at that yeah. that time, I, my mind was racing. I couldn't, well, I couldn't so give going her on. the number. She called her son. Her son called Logan, which is Katie's brother, who I work with. And um, he called his dad, which is Katie's step stepdad, and then they got a hold of Rhonda. Mm-hmm. And then um, stepdad, the mom, came up, and that's when Rhonda was shown on body camera just running. Oh, hard to hard hard to watch. I could never imagine losing a child. You know, that's um, no no parent should ever have have to go through that ever. No. And so I'm asking for somebody to please uh, check on my kids, please, please. And so there was a Denison PD officer there, and the guy was gold. He was, you know, he was letting anybody that wanted to come up, come up, any family member. He he goes, I'm going to relax this for you. Um, Anybody that comes up, I'll escort them up up here because they had COVID restrictions. But he was just like, we're going to get you taken care of. Fan, fantastic. So this guy is treating you a lot better. Great. He's My God. doing his job fantastic. right. In fact, um, something else that uh, just, you know, just it's it's a stark contrast between how Denison PD acted and how D- DPS acted. Um, we talked about the officer at the ICU. Well, I was told that there was a service uh, resource officer, SRO, that Denison PD had at the school that Katie taught at. Mm-hmm. Take your time. Um, he had, <clears throat> he was no longer at, at the school because of, of COVID and heard what happened. Um, pulled off whatever duty he, he, he was on and um, came to my door to go check on my my kids you know oh yeah that's an officer yeah exactly well and that's the thing in these cases where we do have to call out the police for doing the wrong thing it's we know there's great officers out there but we can only keep those officers doing the good work like actually being able to be praised and honored if we call out these people who are not doing the good work. So I, I in your story, it's it's crazy that you can even see those two polar opposites where you had people who were doing really great and like incredible work and then the people doing a really awful job. Denison PD, you know, you had an officer that pulled off of his duty to go check on my, my kids, right, without being in, instructed. Um, That's amazing. Grayson County Sheriff's Office ended up getting hold of Tarif to ask him if he could go do a welfare check on my kids. And his response caught on body camera was they probably won't even come to the fucking door. So he's just like, excuse my language, a dick. I cannot handle him. I don't like him. All these things are caught on camera. So these it's not even like a hearsay thing. It's like he is actually a bad person and a bad officer. His own words. You know, again, um, I support law enforcement just like I'm sure everybody else does. But it's the right. it's the, you know, 0.01% of officers that paint law enforcement with a broad stroke. That's it. And yeah. Tarif... Tarif does a disservice to um, law enforcement and especially to DPS. So John is sitting there at the hospital there in Denison, just riddled with worry about his wife. But he's relieved when he hears from a family member that Katie is fine. He's told they did a scan on her brain and she's going to be okay. 
but this is a miscommunication. Everyone was confused that day. They're calling back and forth. Everyone, you know, it's like just they're playing phone tag with each other, all calling each other, trying to see what happened, how everyone was doing. And unfortunately, misinformation had been handed over to John. Katie was actually in a bad condition. She wasn't going to make it through this, and she was pronounced dead on April 22nd, 2020 at 12.55 a.m. I get a call back an hour later um, from the same family member. Oh, you take your time and... There had been some mis misinformation, <clears throat> and um, she wasn't going to make it that... There was nothing anybody could do. Roller coaster. I mean, just hearing that she's fine and then going, oh, my God, you know, like maybe she just, you know, and then, no, she is not fine. I got some bad information. I believe they got my information. And, again, um, just a bunch of everybody trying to figure out what's going on. You family at this hospital, family at this hospital, people going back and forth. And then so... Um, Rhonda took the kids to Plano. Rhonda's Katie's mom to uh, say goodbye. And um, you, you have a kid. Yeah, I have two. I have two daughters, and so this, like, it's so sad to me to think of just like a mom being taken. This is the worst day of their life, right? They were woke up that day by their grandmother saying that. Their parents had gotten hit by a truck. Get your clothes on. We need to go. They don't. They don't have any clue um, if we're doing fine or not. Um, that's how my kids were woken woke up, up that, that, day. that day. Hours later, they're in Plano, and my wife, because they had it on, they FaceTimed me just because they wanted me to be be there. Uh, Katie looked. As beautiful as she always did. Um, I remember she was laying on the bed, and um, that trauma center had put this uh, like purple knit blanket on her, and she had this. I mean, her hair. She just had wavy, wavy black hair, and uh, just looked like she was asleep, and. Uh, Somebody had dropped a phone off to me. I think Katie's brother had dropped off his phone to me. And uh, 60 miles miles away, watching my kids say goodbye to their mom and not being able to be there with them um, on the hardest day of their life. That was rough. And then they brought the kids up to see me, and that was emotional there and then um they said that they were going to do it do a test there wasn't anybody there to d declare her dead there was a certain test they had to do and um either the i, I believe the doctor wasn't going to be there until yeah you know later on that night and um it still didn't didn't seem real yeah um you know i think everybody has this expectation that all of a sudden you're, you're going to get a call that, hey, she woke up, you know, it was fine, there was something wrong with the machine, she woke up, it was fine, uh, I got a call at uh, 1 o'clock that morning uh, from a doctor saying that, um, hey, we did all, all the tests, and um, she's she's gone, she's brain, brain dead, um, and then I went to go, I asked to be let out of the hospital, they said they wanted to keep me there for a couple more days, but, um, I, sorry, no, I, fine. I had to go be with my, my, my kids. Um, yeah. you're like, no, nope, stay out of here. in a hospital. Yeah. There was nothing I'm going to do, but sit down in a bed. So I went to go be with them. And then, um, Katie's dad, uh, stepmom had picked me up and drove, driven me over to Toronto's house. And then Katie's stepdad drove me to Plano and, um, that's where I said my bye. 
this episode ended up being too long so that's where I'm going to end it for part one and I'm releasing part two at the same time because I just told it as one cohesive story so this is where this episode's ending but you can go to part two right now and just start that and it will just go right along with where this ended. (laughs) 